Welcome back, my friends, to the Derate the Hate podcast. I am your host, Wilk from Wilksworld.com, and this is going to be episode 78. In this week's episode, I am joined by Fred Cook, a man who has a fascinating story, starting as a teenager, seeking identity, found hatred. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends, so you're going to have to stick around for that conversation. But first, we did not create the hate, but with your help, we can derate the hate. It's all about us as individuals. So what have you done today to make your life a better life? What have you done today to make the world a better place? It's really about bettering the world one attitude at a time, and that, again, is up to us as individuals. An individual that's doing a lot of things to try and better the world and better himself is Fred Cook. Now, Fred began his journey into extremism as a young teenager that started off by seeking an identity, ended up dealing with some trauma, and then hate found him. His journey to extremism culminated in him becoming the chief of staff for the National Socialist Movement under Jeff Scoop. Now, you might remember Jeff Scoop. He was the leader of the National Socialist Movement, who I also talked to back in episode 70 when we talked about redemption for radicals. Fred Cook left the movement and consciously began working towards introspection and healing of himself, his family, and those afflicted by his past extremism. The story does not end there. Years into his path of redemption, Fred Cook actually finds out he is Jewish. So we have a former American Nazi, chief of staff of the National Socialist Movement, who finds out his ancestry is Jewish. Not a conversation you're going to want to miss. Let's get to it. Fred Cook, thank you for joining the Dear Eight the Hate podcast. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me here tonight. Fred, I became familiar with you when uh, actually a colleague of yours uh, was on the podcast a number of weeks ago. Back in episode 70, I interviewed uh, Jeff Scoop for the podcast. And we talked about there being redemption for radicals. And and obviously, you've known of Jeff for, for quite a number of years, uh, worked closely with him in the uh, National Socialist Movement. And why don't you talk a little bit about, about your role in uh, your former role in the the National Socialist Movement, and talk about for important. This I think it's important that we that we make every make sure everybody understands that you've been out of the National Social Movement for what, like eight nine years at this point. Yeah, almost nine years now. Okay, so talk about your role with the National Socialist Movement, and and then we'll you know we'll kind of dive into what got you out of that and uh, what you're doing now. I've been involved with. Uh, National Socialism itself since I was a teen. Um, I became fairly well acquainted with people like David Lane, um, lots of big names in the the movement that are horrible individuals, to say the least. Um, But it all culminated with me joining the National Socialist Movement. And in about a year, I became its chief of staff. Uh, I was in charge of pretty much uh, contacting members, maintaining members lists, setting up uh, meetings, setting up big rallies and protests and things like that. It was pretty much eight to nine hours a day every day of my life was working towards, you know, what they call the 13 words, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. 
that was pretty much my life. Every single day, wake up, start working on that stuff, you know, and it came down to where after so long of, of being involved in it, you start seeing small holes, things that, that don't quite add up. And it wasn't necessarily in the, the ideology at first. At first it was, well, I see all these members turning in other members, you know, that they're supposedly brothers and trying to take care of, you know, each other. And here they are turning in each other because they're found to have a black friend or something mm -hmm. like that. So the whole brother thing went, the brotherhood thing went out the, the window. And then it was a lot of other small things sort of snowballed after that and right. led to the ideology. So Fred, talk, talk about, you said, you, you said it, it started in your teen years. So a question that I talked about with, uh, with Jeff was what originally was the appeal? Because I, I mean, you, you and I both know at this point, it, it's a foundation or it's an organization with a foundation of hatred. It's not something, and like Jeff said, it's not something that you immediately look at at first and see, oh yeah, I just want to go out and be a, a, a hateful person. So what was it that that Fred Cook saw as a teenager as the appealing draw? You know, what 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 drew you to the National Socialist movement? I mean, I, I don't think most people say, oh, I want to go out and be a Nazi. That's exactly right. Um, I had no identity as a kid. I was the type of person that when I'd ask my family, what are we, they would say, I think we're German or English or something, you know, and that would be it. So it was like, we, I didn't really have an identity. I didn't have any form of culture other than what was around me. And what was around me was predominantly Vietnamese, Laos, Cambodian. That was the community that I lived in. I was the only white kid there. I was, you know, there's a Chinese term for round eye called guaylo. And you'll even hear people that are of Vietnamese descent use that for white people. So I, I, I was sort of the outsider. I was the Guaylo living in their community. And I was always treated like that. Um, so I had no identity and I was looking for a community to turn to. My family moved into an Irish neighborhood shortly after that. Well, they were like, you're, you don't look Irish. You're not an Irish person. So, you know, you don't really fit in here. But, you know, you can live here, but, you know, you don't really fit in with the rest of us. And so it was like, OK, so I don't fit in here now either. And one of my friends that I did make when I was in uh, junior high school, he was like, I have these friends that, that they might like you, that they don't care what you are as long as you're white. And I was like, oh, great. And they turned out to be skinheads. And they came to me and they were like, hey, what's up, brother? You know, if you're white, you're right. And shook my hands, took me to have fun with them, hanging out. You know, I was skateboarding at the time, so I would skateboard with some of them. And that sort of became my everyday thing. That That's who I fit in with. And that's sort of what gave me my identity. And uh, it was like I felt like I finally found a place where I fit in. I finally found a place where I belong, regardless of me not knowing what I am racially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that that's sort of what cannonballed me through everything. Okay, so that yeah, that I, I mean, I, I think any any reasonable mind can can kind of grasp how that started. And then, how many years did that go on where? 
you were you were hanging out with the skinheads and then when did you I mean obviously at some point Fred you started to see that it it wasn't just a a friendship between those and a belonging between those but pretty soon you had to start to realize that in order to be part of that you had to hate and castigate those th- those that weren't like you guys right Right. Well, we'll see. For me, it, it culminated in I was about 15 in high school and I was already dating a girl um, that I met through my friends. And this black girl in high school said, hey, you know, I, I kind of like you. I think you're cute. Can we go out? And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm already dating somebody. At that time, I, I wasn't really racist. I just had these guys I hung out with. And she went around the school telling them that I called her the N word. And I was jumped after school, hit in the back of the head with a brick and beaten half to death in a coma for three days. And it was the skinheads that were like, we're walking you to school and picking you up from school every day. And it was like, wow, these guys really care about me. And it was, you know, all the little jokes that they made about black people and stuff like that. It was really true. These people did that to me. And I didn't say anything to her bad other than, no, I can't date you. I don't want to date you. And so that sort of radicalized me that sort of set into motion. I I have a two inch steel plate in the back of my skull from that altercation. And that sort of radicalized me and sent me into the, okay, well, I I hate these people because they wish me harm. They wish my people harm. And that's where it sort of really launched me into the full on. We need to do work. We need to sort of, of put this out there that these people aren't good, that, that, there's bleeding hearts out there, you know, yeah, that's what yeah. we're always told. Anybody that doesn't hate is a bleeding heart. And that that's all there was to it. And that's sort of what led me down the path. Yeah. And, and I, I, again, I, I think a lot of people will look at that and, and realize as a, as a youngster, I mean, a, a young and impressionable mind, if you have hateful people guiding you down that path at that point, you don't really have the capacity to realize that those were individuals that did that to you and not a whole race of people and a whole group of people. And, and, and so when you have something traumatic like that happen, I, they, they, I, I can see how they could dive in and take advantage of that uh, situation and like take you down the path. Like oh, blood yeah. in a piranha pool. It, it was, hey, we love you. See, we told you, we warned you about these people you go to school with. Stay away from them. It was 100% blood in a, a pool of piranhas. Yep. And that's yep. what did it. How many years was it then, Fred, that that you, we, we've, we've gotten to the point where you were radicalized. And then now you're... Now you're definitely on the path. You're you're on the path. You're enraged with hatred. You've had trauma. You've come to the point where you're blaming your trauma on a whole group of people instead of a uh, instead of the individuals who did it. How many years were you enraged with that hatred? Uh, were you engrossed in that hatred then before you before you became uh, before you came became friends with B? Talk about uh, talk about that period. You know how long of a period was it, and then talk about meeting B and and how things started to change. 
from age 13 until just eight years ago. I'm 43 today. So it was quite a bit of time um, because before that, I mean, the older generation, you always hear them say the N word, you know, and that was pretty thrown around in my family. Um, so it was fairly ingrained back then, even from then, even though it wasn't like a, a hate thing, it was still a very racist atmosphere um, from the much older generation. And uh, eight years ago, when I left the movement, I was online. I was like, I'm done with this. I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to be looking over my shoulder for perceived enemies all the time. I'm going to make friends with everybody and anybody that I could possibly meet. I'm going to do it on Facebook where I'll feel safe, where I won't feel like, hey, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get violated again. And I met B, B Stevens. Um, he, we first started talking online. He was a part of a black separatist group um, years before that. And he was like, I left that. So I know kind of how you're feeling and you know how you feel like everybody in that, that group is bad. You know, he was like, I hated white people for a very long time. He was like, let's make an agreement. Um, I'll talk to you. You talk to me, ask any questions. Neither of us can get mad. We have to try to, to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. We have to sit there and we have to talk like adults, like men. He was like, nobody's going to get mad. Nobody's going to throw punches or any of that. Nobody's going to do anything horrible. He only lived a couple hours away from me. And we talked pretty much every day. He became my best friend until he committed suicide in 2017 or 2018. But it was because of that conversation, you know, from the very beginning where we set out these guidelines, we talked every day for you know at least an hour he'd get home from work as a, a guard and he would be like hey you know is, has anybody seen fred and somebody would message me and be like hey b's looking for you he wants to talk to you and we would talk for an hour to two hours sometimes almost every single night and it was from that that you know we both sort of realized we're, we're humans that that's all there is to it. We're humans. We have different experiences that led us to different perceptions of things, but we're humans. At the end of the day, we all want, you know, not to suffer. We want what's best for our loved ones. We want, you know, a, a decent life. We, we don't want to see people we love suffer. And we sort of had this friendship that was really, really, you know, it wasn't an intense friendship, but it was a friendship that if he was in trouble, I would find a way to get two hours away from me to where he was to help him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and vice versa. We knew that each other was, you know, we were best friends, period. Okay. That's very good. And sorry for the loss of B. I, I don't know. And, and we don't need to get into, you know, why he ended up taking his whole life. But I, I too have, have had some very close friends that I've lost to suicide and and that uh, as, as a friend, as somebody who cares about others, and uh, as somebody who spent time with people who have ultimately taken their life, I, I, know, I know from experience how hard that is, and, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. So, so after B, you, uh, you had another experience that, that kind of took you further along in your journey, right? When I got my ancestry report, it came back that I was, in fact, Irish. I am... 50 something percent Irish. I'm a little bit English. Like my family initially thought I do have some English. 
and the rest was all Ashkenazi Jewish. And really? for me, for me, it came as a shock. It was like, these are the people that I demonized the most. You know, I remember we would do flyer campaigns where we would put flyers in plastic bags and leave them on lawns in case it rained and people would find them. And I remember the neighborhoods we targeted, it was well known that, you know, some of those neighborhoods were primarily Jewish neighborhoods and that that's who my people were. The whole time I was looking for my identity, it was the people that I was demonizing and it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And for several years now, I've been working to um, sort of expose the, the fallacies of, of right nationalist extremists. Um, but when that happened, when I found out that I was Jewish, I started um, getting books on the people and actually starting to, to research uh, the culture, the language, just about everything I could to, to learn about. Judaism. I lived in an Irish neighborhood. Um, I, I know quite a bit of, of Gaelic, even. Mm -hmm. um, so that wasn't a problem because I partially grew up in an Irish neighborhood. I, I was exposed to that on a daily basis, but I had no any connection at that point to Judaism or the Jewish people. And I started to to sort of read all of these different books on the Jewish people. And it led me to finding Judaism. I've been an occultist since I was 10. So finding Judaism was literally the least thing between being a national socialist and an occultist. Everything so, ran sort of anathema to that. So Fred, so you went from being, being a Nazi uh, an American Nazi, a uh, 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 chief of staff for the uh, National Socialist Movement, somebody who is actively campaigning, dropping flyers in neighborhoods, organizing riots and rallies uh, for, for the Nazi movement here in the United States, and, and being an active occultist for your whole life, somebody who, for, for people who don't know, uh, and an occultist, you're practicing magic, you're, you're, you know, witchcraft, that kind of thing, right? The, the stars, the moon. Right. So, so you're a, you're, a, you're an international speaker as an occultist. Uh, you're, you're an American Nazi, part of the national socialist movement. You've turned that around and now you are, uh, you've converted your whole family to, to Judaism. Is that, is that correct? I mean, you guys are, uh, you guys are doing, the full Monty with, uh, with, with conversion and the kids are the kids. How many kids do you have now, uh, Fred? I have four, two boys, two girls. You have two boys and two girls. And, uh, you guys are, are, are taking, taking them through the, the converting to Judaism. Talk about how you feel now as a, as a person of faith moving into the, the tenets of Judaism, and how you feel now when you wake up in the morning and how you feel now in your heart versus all those years, those 30 years, you are a practicing, practicing hatred, practicing. I mean, just. I wake up every day, just thankful to be alive. Um, I have ankylosing spondylitis, which has left me pretty much unable to walk. Um, I still wake up with a smile on my face every morning, happy to be alive. I still wake up every day wanting to meet some new people. Every single day of my life, one of my best friends is a, a transgender woman, best friend I've, I've had since B. Um, 
I wake up every day just happy, just wanting to help people, wanting to to get the information out of everything that I've been through and know to help people to avoid the pitfalls that I did. Just wanting people to know that um, there's regardless of where you are, how you feel, how alone you feel, don't let that lead you into something that is utter darkness, that's utter horror. My life was fighting constantly, and it was because of how I, I treated other people. It was a constant struggle every single day of my life back then. And now I wake up and it's like, what can I do to help somebody today? You know, are there homeless people around us we can get some food to? Is there, you know, some cause that we can help, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, single mothers or, you know, anti-extremism, whatever it is, if there's something I can do to help people, that that's what I want to do. And I literally feel like every day of my life from pretty much for the past several years now, I've been working anti, uh, not, not Antifa, don't get me wrong, but working countercurrent to everything uh, white nationalist, national socialist. I've been working for years now on trying to get people to realize that everybody's human. And so every day that I wake up now, if there's something that I have to do, it's generally something that's for the benefit of humanity, not for the benefit of any race, not for the benefit of any person or any perceived uh, enemy. I have no enemies today. Everybody, I have no enemies. I mean, that that's ridiculous to say, but it's freeing because mm-hmm. most of my life, I felt like everyone was the enemy. Half of the white people, you know, they're brainwashed by, you know, Zog, the Zionist occupational government. So half of the white people are my enemy. The black people were my enemy. The Jewish people were my enemy. Now I wake up and it's everybody's my brother and sister. It's 180 degrees different from everything that I had believed, everything that I had let myself be roped into. Well, it's an incredibly liberating feeling, I, I have to imagine. I, 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 uh, I, I spent a lot of my life very, very pissed off, a lot of animosity. Uh, I, grew up, uh, I grew up a very bullied person, didn't have a whole lot of identity, but I kept on reinventing my identity throughout my life, never, never in a hateful way. And, and uh, I, I've always tried to steer clear of the hate, but I've always, I've always dealt with a lot of misery. And uh, I, I'm, I, I'm a lot more liberated now in my own mind because I am able to look at things differently, look at things a lot differently now than I, than I ever have in my life. I, I love life a lot more now. And, uh, you know, I, I think about, I think about things that have happened in my past and I I think about, you know, how I could have fallen over, well, for lack of a better way to put it, fallen over to the dark side, you know, like, uh, like you did or, or like Jeff, you know, scoop did and, and and I thank God Almighty that I, I never did. But that doesn't change the fact that I, I did spend a lot of time miserable. And, and the, the liberating feeling of, of letting go of a lot of that uh a lot of that hatred, whether it be internal hatred or uh, or animosity towards things that happened as a kid or or whatever. It 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 is in it is liberating, it is it is incredible and 
and, and Fred, the the work that you're doing, uh, you know, as an interventionist with with Beyond Barriers, and uh, and and you know, getting away from the movement and trying to help other people who are trying to de-radicalize, it's an incredibly important. It's an incredibly important thing, and, and I don't think we can understate how important that is, uh, or I don't think we can overstate how important that is for people like you that have been in the movement that, uh, that have been able to walk away and find ways to uh, live a better life, uh, live a happier life and, and help those that are trying to get out of that. What Fred would you say is the most important thing, whether it's a person who wants to de-radicalize or a person who knows somebody who is a radical what is the most important thing that Fred Cook can tell the audience about or, or talk to talk to somebody like that? What what what's the most important thing that we can do or the listeners can do today if they if they are if they are that person, if they're the radical or if they are if they know somebody who's a radical? What's the most important thing Fred Cook wants to say to that person today? Regardless of any differences we have, and I mean we as in all of humanity, regardless of any of the differences any of us have, there's a whole lot more that we have in common. And I'm not going to say the cliche, we all bleed red, because animals bleed red too. But I am going to say that we all, as sentient people, want what's best for our loved ones. We all want what's best for um the people we care about and for ourselves. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to feel pain, like I was saying earlier, and nor does anyone else. And when you start adding the things up that we have in common, um, you start to see that there's very few differences that aren't superficialities. Once you sort of say, okay, there's a black man in front of me, take his skin color away. Yes, he struggles. Yes, he has his own issues that he's dealt with. But when you strip down all of the things that are external, all of the things that that the ignorant would say are the primary focus, when you strip everything away from every single person, they're a human being. You're a human being. Whether you have an identity or not, you, you identify as a human being because you are, and so are they. The person sitting across from you is is just as entitled to wanting to live life in peace as you are. The, their family is just as entitled to live life without being told they're wrong because of anything. Um, of course, illegal actions are another story, but um, they're, they're entitled to live a life just like you, just like me, just like every single person on this planet. When you strip away the things that, that, aren't the person like you often hear people say what do you do for a living well that's not who i am that's not what the person across from me is your job doesn't define you the color of a person's skin doesn't necessarily have to define them um the the language barriers don't necessarily have to define people um the way a person talks doesn't define that person. What defines that person is their innate ability to see the humanity in other people. When you dehumanize a person and you hate that person, you are in effect taking that humanity and, and making that the demon, making that the, the root cause of what's wrong. And it's like looking in a mirror and hating the person you see in front of you. 
that's where I think a lot of the hatred comes from. A lot of people don't like themselves. A lot of people, Carl Jung, for instance, said that to to hate somebody, you have to actually have experienced whatever it is that you hate in them, in yourself first. It's like if you have toast and, you know, there's toast across from you and you could say, I don't want this toast. I don't like it because you've had to have had it, the experience with it for yourself first and foremost. So I think a lot of it is self-loathing. A lot of it comes from demonizing people based on superficiality so that you have a scapegoat, Um, Mm -hmm. something to say, this is what's wrong with my life and it's their fault. Right. Yeah. I, I think a lot of it does come down to that victim mentality. And, and, uh, you know, when, when there are people out there with very loud voices that, that take advantage of those who have been had traumatic experiences like you did, Fred, or, uh, or, or me as a child, like I said, um, somebody could have very easily taken me to, uh, to, to a different, different part of, uh, a different type of, of lifestyle because of the bullying that I experienced as a child. Um, when people, when you have loud voices out there, when you have groups that are actively looking to take advantage uh, of the trauma in in one's life and convince them that they're a victim and, and, and constantly put in their mind that they are a victim and then say, well, it'll all be okay if we just hate this group because we can blame this group. We can blame this group for the problems that we have whether it be uh, the upper class being the fault or, or being the, the boogeyman for the lower class, whether it being uh, people of color being the boogeyman for the white people, whether it be um, the, the Jews being the boogeyman for whoever. I mean, everybody's hated the Jews at one point in time in, in history. It, it, it's terrible because those loud voices, which are just noise, but those loud voices take advantage of other people's trauma and use it to their advantage to keep us separated. And and it's, it's no good. So what you're doing is incredible, Fred, keep it up, Uh, keep up what you're doing. You've got an incredible story. I, uh, I I definitely want people to check out. Uh, I've read some of your works, seen some of your artwork, the work you do as an interventionist with beyond barriers is uh is to be commended it's great and uh on the d-rate the eight podcast i'm all about bettering the world one attitude at a time one of the primary things i like to do with the guests here is to get guests that are to bettering the world in some way i believe fred you're doing great work to better the world and uh i do believe in redemption for radicals just like i said to jeff uh back in episode 70 um, and I think, uh, I think you continue to do what you do, you know, God bless you on, on your journey toward Judaism and, uh, keep it up, man. It's awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, I don't like to say, you know, that what we're doing is this tremendous thing. I mean, it's incredible what we're able to do, but it's the least we can do. It's literally the least we can do. I'm going to work towards, trying to redeem myself probably for the next 40 years, God willing me living that long, but I'm going to be working that long just towards redeeming myself. 
So we'll keep it up. And uh, I, I hope the D-Rate to Hate listeners will uh, will find value in, in, in our conversation today. Uh, again, you've got an incredible story, and I'm, uh, I'm glad you came to share it on the D-Rate to Hate podcast. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Friends, it's stories like this that I think we really need to listen to, listen to it again, share it with your friends, because, you know, hate finds people. Hate looks for opportunity, just like anything else. Hate looks for opportunity. Fred Cook was somebody as a young man who was seeking an identity, seeking an identity. And because of the circumstances of of his his upbringing, because of the circumstances of where he lived, different things, hate found him. Hate found him and it culminated into decades of hatred. I want to make very clear that nothing excuses hate. Nothing excuses the uh, actions and the poisonous and disgusting ideology behind the National Socialist Movement. Nothing. Thankfully, he was able to wait, able to find his way out of that movement. You know, thankfully, people like him and Jeff Scoop found their way out and didn't just find their way out, but are actively working day in and day out now to help others out, to get away from that lifestyle of hatred, that lifestyle of just poisonous behavior, of hurting other people. You know, I I don't know if they'll ever find peace with what they've done uh, over the course of their lives. Fred Cook's story is fascinating. His conversion, his family's conversion to Judaism and the the devotion that they have now to that faith and and what they're doing with that and and his devotion to becoming an interventionist, helping others get away from radicalism and extremism of all kinds, Uh, his devotion to uh, befriending people of all races and walks of life. In my opinion, that's to be commended, and I I hope you feel the same. But uh, if not, I hope something out of this episode makes you think anyway. Just makes you think. If you want to learn more about Fred, check out uh, beyondbarriersusa.org. He's part of the board over there. And, uh, and, and his, his website, I, don't, I think he mentioned it on the, on the cast there, but uh, he's got his own website as well, sonofsinai.com, where he's talking about his journey out of extremism and into Judaism. And uh, it's something you really need to check out. It's pretty fascinating stuff. You can find that link in the show notes, of course, and go there and send him a message. Tell him uh, Wilkin, the folks over at the D-Rate the Hate podcast, said to say hi. Friends, I want to leave you with a thought. Hate finds people, and people find hate in all kinds of different places. None of us are perfect. Some of us may never be able to fully redeem ourselves for our past indiscretions. But uh, it's not what we did yesterday that truly matters. It's what we do today, tomorrow, and every day going forward that really makes a difference. So get out there, be kind to one another, be grateful for everything that you've got, and remember, it's up to you to make each and every day the day that you want it to be. I am Wilk from WilksWorld.com. So grateful for everybody who's taken the time to listen to this. Check us out on most social media platforms. Follow our pages. Share us with your friends. Leave us a little feedback wherever you get your podcast. And uh, with that, I'm going to back on out of here. We'll catch you next week. Take care.